0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, bringing you the August 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society, 1888, with guest speaker Adam Wood, presenting Swanson, a year in the casebook of a Victorian detective. Adam Wood is the editor of Ripperologist magazine, which has recently celebrated its 20-year anniversary, and is the man at the helm of Mango Books which publishes The Rip, as well as a growing selection of what I believe are some of the best books to come out from a single publisher in recent memory. The forthcoming book from Adam will be available through Mango and is entitled Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective. For those who need reminding, Donald Swanson spent most of his life in the Metropolitan Police Department, rising to the level of Chief Inspector and then Superintendent. He was in overall charge of the Whitechapel murders investigation and is responsible for what is referred to as the Swanson marginalia, being his notes written in his personal copy of Sir Robert Anderson's reminisces that named Kosminski as the suspect and described the attempt made to identify him as Jack the Ripper. And so now I turn it over to Tony Power from the Whitechapel Society at the Chamberlain Hotel in London, introducing Adam Wood and Swanson, a year in the casebook of a Victorian detective.
1: And welcome everybody, welcome to the August 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society and uh, I must say it's great to see so many people here in the Chamberlain Hotel here in Minories, in the heart of the London's East End. I mean we're in the heart of holiday season so obviously you've organised your holidays around the Whitechapel Society which is terrific. Um, so, welcome everybody. I'd also just like to welcome everybody who's listening into this through the RipperCast podcast. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen or heard of the RipperCast podcast, but it's a terrific um, resource. Uh, great interviews about the Jack the Ripper murders um, and well worth checking out. So, if you're listening online, you're very welcome. Um, and just to give you a bit more information, if you want to find out about the Whitechapel Society, and get a bit more information, we do have a website, and it's whitechapelsociety.com. And there you'll find a list of our future speakers, um, more about the society itself. Uh, you'll be able to see a selection of books that we produced on the Jack the Ripper um, murders, and even buy them from the website. And you can find out how to become a member and what that entitles you to. So again, just for the base of people who are listening online, to give you a flavour where we're broadcasting from, we're here in the Chamberlain Hotel in Minories, which is in the heart of the London's East End. So directly to the north of us is Whitechapel High Street and Allgate and literally 10 minutes walk to the direct south of us is the iconic London Tower Bridge. Um, And we're in the heart of what became known as the Double Event Territory. So just to the East of us is Berner Street, now called Henrik Street, where Liz Stride was found. And just to the northwest of us is Mitre Square, where Catherine Eddowes was discovered. So we're right in the middle of London's East End. Um, so tonight, we welcome Adam Wood to the Society. <laughs> Big cheer. Yay! <laughs> And as you can no doubt hear, Adam is a well-known expert in the field of Jack the Ripper, and we're very happy to have him here with us tonight. Um, He is the editor of the excellent Ripperologist magazine, which is terrific, um, and it's totally free. So if you want to find out more about the Ripperologist magazine and subscribe to it, that's well worth a a read. Um, In addition to that, he's also just started his own publishing company called Mango Books, uh, and there is a selection of Mango Books right at the back. Mickey is holding up R- Crayology. I've got a copy. That's a terrific book. Uh, and you can buy those here tonight. And if you ask Adam Nicely, I'm sure he'll sign them for you as well. Um, so Mango Books produces uh, books about the Jack the Ripper um, case and about the history of the East End of London uh, as well. Um, he's also written articles about some of the key members of the, uh, the Jack the Ripper um, uh, Incidents such as Coroner Winbaxter, Baxter, and he's also written an article about Sir Malcolm McNaughton. But tonight, he's talking to us about one of the main players in the Jack the Ripper murders, uh, which is Donald Swanson. And Donald Swanson was the police officer who was in charge of the investigation into the murders. So, the title of his talk tonight is Swanson, a year in the casebook of a Victorian detective. I can't wait for it. Please welcome Adam
2: Wood. (laughs) Now, we all know Donald Sutherland Swanson from his being in charge of the Ripper investigation, as Tony says, and some will be aware of some of his other cases. Swanson had enjoyed a series of promotions and in 1896 was appointed detective superintendent of the CID, a very different role to that of his days as an inspector on the street. Being superintendent meant it was his job to ensure the smooth running of the CID. Despite being mostly at his desk overseeing the running of dozens of cases, under investigation duty department, it was very hard work. Yes, once Donald Swanson had become superintendent, it was always work, work, work. Swanson would become well known to the public with the arrest of an infamous railway murderer in July 1881. What I'd like to do this evening is to talk about the year leading up to this event. At the beginning of 1880, Swanson was 31 years old, a detective inspector who joined the detective department just three and a half years earlier. At this time, he was in the habit of recording his cases in his arrest book shown here. However, the first case we look at wasn't recorded, nor was it reported in any newspaper for reasons which will become apparent. The episode began when the Reverend Coxhead, the vicar of St John the Evangelist on London Charlotte Street, noticed that pages had been torn from the baptismal register and, believing it to be an act of malice from a member of his congregation, contacted Scotland Yard, who put the case in the hands of Detective Inspector Swanson. Realising the leaves had not been stolen for their intrinsic value, Swanson immediately suspected that crime was a forgery believing the leaves had been stolen to prevent proof of the forgery being discovered learning that a copy of an entry relating to an aristocratic name had recently been sent to Mrs Feesdale, solicitors to the Duke of Somerset Swanson went to the lawyer's offices and demanded to see the page supplied the detective learned that Mr Edwardson Moore the 30-year-old nephew of the Duke had married a few months earlier the bride had said her name was Lillian Stanhope the daughter of Thomas Stanhope a deceased general the family, sensing she was not who she pretended to be, politely informed her that if she could obtain proof of her identity from someone they knew, they would accept her, but not otherwise. Unable to do so, a few days later, the new Mrs. Samore had presented Feasdale with a copy of her baptism record, with the words, "'Sir, you refuse to receive my, believe my word as a lady. Surely you will not refuse to believe the copy of my baptismal register?' On examining the copy closely some time later, Feasdale noticed that, according to the dates upon it, Mrs. St. Moore had been baptised three months before she'd been born. (laughs) They contacted St. John's and obtained a correct copy, which revealed that the record had in fact been for the baptism of a three-year-old girl. When accused of the forgery, Mrs. St. Moore indignantly denied it. Two days later, the leaves were removed from the register at St. John's. Swanson began to investigate Mrs St Moore and what he discovered was an incredible story. Described as a young woman of prepossessing appearance, she'd been born Florence Higgins at Northampton on the 21st of December 1853, the illegitimate daughter of Elizabeth Higgins, whose husband John had been a soldier of the 49th Regiment of Foot, but at that time was an in-pensioner of Chelsea Hospital. One William Higgins, wine merchant, was named on the birth certificate. Florence gravitated to London, where she remained until early 1871, and then went, to nor- went north to Liverpool, where she found work performing as a showgirl. On leaving the Alexandra Theatre one evening in late April, she met Edward Goddard, an 18-year-old cotton broker's apprentice. She introduced herself as Lydia Foote, the well-known actress, and the couple spent the evening together and probably the night. Within a few weeks of the meeting, the naive Goddard was told that he had made Lydia pregnant, and only one course of action was open to him. The couple were married on the 9th of July 1871 at the Holy Trinity Church, Liverpool. The 17-year-old bride now called herself Lillian Eleonora Higgins and stated that her father was Inspector <coughs> of Police. Witnesses included Millicent Mary Jeanette Lytton, known in Liverpool as one of the worst prostitutes and thieves, and a Mrs Morton, whose arrest was sought for theft. The newlyweds moved to rooms at 20 Harbord Street, but when Goddard's father Henry, a respected architect and magistrate, learned of the marriage, he stopped his son's £100 allowance, and there was little choice for Edward but to return to the family home at 122 High Street, Lincoln. Lillian followed a week later and was found lying on the doorstep, apparently senseless, with a small stream of black liquid issuing from both corners of her mouth. Henry Goddard called the chief constable of Lincoln and was taken, she was taken into custody for attempted suicide. <coughs> Appearing in front of the magistrates on the 9th of September, she defended herself, stating, "'Gentlemen, I've been taught the definition of suicide "'is a takeaway of one's own life. "'I have never even attempted it. "'My husband was taken away from me and kept away by his father. "'And with the view of exciting my husband's sympathy, "'I bought a penny bottle of ink, took some in my mouth "'and allowed it to ooze at the sides, and pretended to have a fit.' Had I drunk the whole of the contents of the bottle, it would not have infused me. There I claimed to be discharged, and at once. She was discharged on the condition that she left Lincoln immediately, and she did show, having agreed to a weekly allowance from Goddard of one pound. Arriving back in Liverpool, Lillian resumed her previous life as a prostitute, working with her mother, Mrs Higgins, and Millie Litton. The three were known locally as the mother and two daughters. Keen to rid herself of the weekly allowance applied to Lillian, Henry Goddard hired a private detective based in Liverpool named Maguire. Following her to a well-known brothel on the 17th of October 1871, Maguire found her in bed with a man. On entering the bedroom, Maguire addressed her. "'Well, Mrs Goddard, you seem very comfortable in bed with another man other than your husband.' She immediately jumped up and put out the gas lamp. Challenging Maguire, he had no evidence.' At this, the private detective lit a match and asked the man for his name, receiving the reply, no English, no correspondent for me. <laughs> At the subsequent divorce hearing, a decree nisi was granted and the marriage was finally dissolved on the 29th of July, 1873. Lillian moved back to London and adopted the name Chesterfield. She became the kept mistress of a solicitor who gave her up after a year because of a wayward lifestyle and she became pregnant by an army officer named Curry, who abandoned her. The child, a girl, was born on the 16th of May 1877 at 41 Windmill Street. She was registered on the 4th of July as Ambrose's Zena Lillian Chesterfield, with the father's name left blank on the certificate. Returning to the stage, two years later, Lillian was appearing as Nellie Armroyd in a performance of Lost in London, and on her way to a rehearsal when she noticed she'd been followed by a gentleman of obvious wealth. She led him along Piccadilly and down to Westminster Bridge, where she where she ran down the steps as if to commit suicide by throwing herself into the Thames. Her plan worked perfectly. The man, Edward St Moore, ran to stop her and led her away, telling him she was Lillian Stanhope, daughter of General Thomas Stanhope Deceased. The young woman claimed to be penniless and wished to end her life. St Moore, infatuated with the good-looking young girl, provided lodgings for her, and three months later, on the 20th of August, they were married at Marylebone Church. She was given away by John Worswick, who was paid ten shillings for performing the duty. Soon afterwards, Worswick was arrested for forgery on a bank and sentenced to 18 months' imprisonment. Lillian's desperate plan had been to take her daughter, Ambrose Azina, to St John's Church and have her baptised for a second time, this time under the name Lillian Stanhope and with a father named General Thomas Stanhope, exactly as she described herself. On ordering a copy, she ordered the age of the person baptised and then presented the document to Mrs Faisdale. Having obtained the full story and facts of the crimes committed, Swanson applied to the public prosecutor for the necessary arrest warrants. Lillian had one more trick up her sleeve. Swanson was told the warrants would be issued as soon as Mrs St. Moore had given birth to the child she was carrying. It would be a wait of ten months before it was discovered she'd bribed a doctor to declare she was pregnant. And in the meantime, the Duchess of Somerset, protecting the family name, used a considerable influence to ensure that no prosecution would take place. As we can see in his private memoranda shown here, Swanson was furious. Thus, one of the clearest and most disgraceful cases of stealing and forgery was compromise. Mr and Mrs St Moore are now abroad, supported by Lord Algenham. There is a probability that this woman will one day become the Duchess of Somerset, in the event, Lillian St. Moore did not become duchess. She died in 1910, receiving a glowing notice in the Times. In Swanson's next case, he was called to investigate the puzzling murder of a woman whose body had been found in strange circumstances in D Division. Local inspectors King and Lucas, having hit a brick wall with their own investigations, contacted Scotland Yard for assistance and Detective Inspectors George Greenham, Donald Swanson, were sent. On their first visit to the scene, they were joined by Howard Vincent, director of the CID. Known facts were few. The butler at 139 Harley Street, a man named Spindlove, had found a cask in the corner of the middle cellar at the house, positioned immediately behind a cistern. Inside were discovered the decomposed remains of a woman dressed in the remnants of a coarse linen chemise, placed headfirst into the barrel. She was estimated to be between 40 and 50 years of age. With dark brown hair and unusually short front teeth, described as if sawn. A plaster of Paris' cast was taking of these. Dr Spurgeon, the divisional surgeon of D-Division, noticed a curvature of the spine, which in his opinion was caused by the body being forced into the barrel. He discovered the whole of the body had been sprinkled with chloride of lime to speed up the decomposition process. On examining the body, Dr Spurgeon found bloodstains on the rib cage on the left side indicating stab wounds between the fourth and fifth ribs. The heart, not yet fully decomposed, showed no signs of injury but the lung had completely dissolved and therefore he could not say for sure whether this had been the cause of death. Bloodstains found within the cast could have come from either the wound to the chest or the victim's nose or mouth after death. The detectives ascertained that the cask had first been noticed some two years earlier in the autumn of 1878 by Mr Woodruffy, caretaker of the house. He said he went to the cellar to catch a rat and noticed the barrel which had bottles on top of it. Woodruffy knocked the barrel with a stick but examined it no further. In July, a plumber named Henley Goatley had undertaken work on the system and had pushed the cask into the corner is subsequently hidden from view by the packing cases which Goatley had stood on to reach the cistern. Progress seemed to be made in the investigation when one William Tinap said he'd been employed at the house as a footman in August 1878. On his first visit to the cellar, he'd seen the cask and also noticed a bad smell. Tinap had also noticed a quantity of bricks had been replaced on the cellar floor and was told by the odd job man, John Green, that he had laid them at the request of the then butler, Henry Smith. It was clear that the police had to find Henry Smith. He'd been the butler at the house for 18 months before leaving his position in November 1878 after being found drunk on duty. And he was now a soldier at the 3rd Surrey Regiment. Smith claimed he'd never seen the cask and that he had dug the hole in order to bury a large amount of stale bread, which he thought he would get in trouble for. Denying this, John Green said he'd seen no bread, and the cook, Mrs Jury, said there'd never been such an accumulation of waste bread in her five years in the house. Things looked ominous for Henry Smith, but with no evidence, no charges could be brought. At the inquest on the 14th of June, coroner Dr Hardwick asked the jury whether they wanted to hear the medical evidence of Dr Thomas Bond, who had also examined the body. Considering Bond's testimony given in future cases, it is a disappointment that the jury declined. The inquest was then closed with the verdict of the body of a woman, name unknown, found in the cellar at 139 Harley Street was the body of a murdered woman, the criminal, also unknown. Two days later it was announced that the government were offering a reward of £100 for information which should lead to the conviction of the murderer, but none came. For his part in the investigation, Swanson was given a reward of 25 shillings. Artifacts of the Harley Street mystery were included in the recent Crime Museum exhibition, including locks of the victim's hair, her stockings and the plaster cast of her teeth. The photographs shown here appeared in the accompanying book. Five weeks after the discovery of the remains at Harley Street, Swanson was called to recover a large quantity of jewellery which had been stolen from a house in Fitzrovia in the early hours of the 24th of July. No one had noticed a shadowy figure stepping through the open gate at 8 Portland Place. Slipping inside the house, the man found a suitably quiet spot and secreted himself away for two hours until he was sure the occupants were asleep. Emerging from his hiding place around 3 a.m., the man crept into the dressing room of the lady of the house and removed a large quantity of jewellery before leaving as quietly as he has entered. With the Earl and Countess of Bechtive away, it was several days before the theft was noticed. By the time Scotland Yard were called in, the thief had already parted company with many of the items. Detective Inspector Swanson was assigned to the case and met the Earl and Countess, obtaining a list of the missing items. Recognising the uniqueness of many pieces, Swanson decided the best course of action would be to circulate a list of the stolen jewellery around the pawnbroker network and so had a notice placed in the pawnbroker's Gazette. This had the desired effect. Charles Parnicott, a jeweller of 28 New Bond Street, contacted the detective and said he'd been approached by a man who wanted to pawn two rings and three pearls. He recognised a diamond and a ruby ring worth £200 as one he had remounted for the Countess some three months earlier. Swanson then visited several other pawnbrokers in the area. James Moore, an assistant to Thomas Richardson at 11 Upper George Street, told the detective that a man named Robinson had pledged 12 diamonds and a single pearl. Robinson had told Richardson that the pearls belonged to his sister who lived in Ireland. A similar story was told to a pawnbroker of Duke Street by a George Turner, who pledged free, loose brilliance while saying that his sister needed money to settle in an account. Swanson went to the Earl of Becktive armed with descriptions of George Turner and Robinson, who he suspected to be the same man. The Earl said it sounded like a former butler named Robert Cumming. At 12.30am on the 24th September, Swanson encountered Cumming on nearby Charlotte Street, shown here. When asked how he came into possession of a single pearl which was found on his possession, the 39-year-old Cumming mumbled something about buying it for a man he didn't know and selling it to another man he didn't know. Unsurprisingly, Swanson replied, these answers were very unsatisfactory. Cumming then said he would tell the truth. He'd pledged the pearl and had the duplicate of the ticket in his rooms. Swanson accompanied Cumming to his home on Weymouth Place. Where the detective discovered in a pair of drawers wrapped in tissue paper, four diamond rings and two pieces of a diamond necklace together with a centre cluster. Asked where he got the jewellery from, Cumming replied, It is Lady Bechtive's jewellery. I committed the offence. Searching the thief, Swanson found two more pawn tickets, one for a single pearl and three brilliants pledged for £20, the other three brilliants pledged for £10. Cumming then removed a further pawn ticket from the lining of his hat. Giving it to Swanson, he explained that it related to a diamond ring paid for £20. He confirmed to Swanson that he would cooperate in any way possible to assist in the recovery of the stolen items and gave the detective a list of various pawnbrokers where the jewellery might be found. It transpired that Cumming had received just £120 for items worth a combined £3,000, the equivalent today of £6,000 for jewellery worth a quarter of a million pounds. He pleaded guilty at the Old Bailey on the 18th of October, 1880, and was sentenced to five years' penal servitude. With all the jewellery stolen jewellery recovered, except a bracelet worth £10, the great Phil Earl of Bractives, paid Swanson a reward of £200. Here's the covering letter held in the Swanson family archives. The detective was also later presented with a revolver by the grateful countess. The pistol, a .23 calibre seven-shot tranter, bore the Countess's monogram and the words, to Donald Swanson, 1882, fixed to the handle. No doubt the Swanson family spent a very enjoyable Christmas following the massive financial windfall, the equivalent of £10,000. The detective started 1881 tracking an English criminal who had committed a series of frauds overseas, but had returned home in an attempt to escape justice. Scotland Yard had been contacted by George Ballantyne, clerk to a firm in the city who acted as agents to Goldsborough & Co, a company of wool brokers in Melbourne, Australia. One of the firm's agents, a Yorkshireman named Mr Horsfall, had been introduced some months earlier to a fellow Englishman wearing a Royal Navy uniform, who called himself Captain Edgerton Playdale Bouverie Tempest. The officer claimed to be a member of the Tempest family from Yorkshire, his father a clergyman, and his uncle, Sir Charles Tempest, he was well known in Melbourne, moving in the best society circles and in the trust of Horsfall by mentioning several Yorkshire families known to him. Tempest showed a letter to Horsfall, which was supposedly from his brother, Walter Tempest, of Two Hyde Park Place in London, authorising him to draw £200 in order to provide funds for his return to London. Trust in the officer Horsfall advanced £250 and letter of exchange was drawn up and signed by both parties. Tempest sailed from Melbourne on the Cotopaxi, shown here. During the voyage, Tempest borrowed money from the majority of the crew, promising to meet them at the Tavistock Hotel in Covent Garden once a ship had arrived in London. They went, but Tempest was nowhere to be seen. The bills of exchange, meanwhile, had been received by Horsfall's agents who contacted a trustee named by Captain Tempest. The trustee replied that he had no client by that name and a clerk was sent to Two Hyde Park Place to speak to Tempest's brother. The door was answered by Dr. Walter Cheadle, who said that nobody by that name of Tempest had ever lived at that address. Shown the bills of exchange, the doctor said he had no knowledge of them, but recognised the handwriting as that of his brother, James Cheadle, who had emigrated to Australia some 20 years previously. The matter was placed in Swanson's hands on Friday the 14th of January. He very soon ascertained that Tempest had taken rooms at the Holborn Viaduct Hotel and made his way there. Meeting the captain as if by chance, Swanson introduced himself as Mr Sutherland of Brighton in London on business, and the pair spent an evening in conversation, during which time Tempest let slip that he knew Mr Horsfall and Mrs Goldsborough of Melbourne. Swanson bade the captain a good evening and left. The following day he returned with a representative of the city agents and showed the captain the letters of exchange, which he denied all knowledge of, exclaiming, They are certainly impudent forgeries in my name. Swanson then arrested Tempest and took him to Bow Street Magistrates Court, where he was searched and found to be covering forged letters purporting to be from members of the Tempest family, asking him to return home, thus establishing identity beyond doubt. At the committal hearing, however, it was ruled that as the offence had taken place outside the magistrate's jurisdiction, no charge could be brought. Tempest was accordingly released and fled the country. It was the latest in a long line of cases where proof had been obtained, but the law did not allow prosecution. Swanson had done his job as a police officer by arresting the offender, but the legal system was not always geared to secure a conviction. Swanson's discreet efficiency had seen him personally chosen to handle the delicate investigations involving the Duke of Somerset and the Earl of Bechtive. And a few weeks after the arrest of Captain Tempest, he was handpicked by Dolphus Williamson to accompany the Chief Superintendent of Dublin to arrest Michael Davitt, a Fenian arms dealer who was on ticket or leave following his release from Dartmoor Prison in 1877. Davitt had been born in County Mayo in 1846, but emigrated to Lancashire following his family's eviction from their smallholding. At the age of 11, he lost in an arm in an accident at a cotton mill where he was working, and later commented that as a result, in the years that followed, he gained a good education. At 15, he became interested in Irish history and the current social situation in his native country, and in 1865 joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Two years later, he became a full-time organising secretary for the North East and Scotland region, organising arms smuggling to Ireland, and took over as chief's arms agent in England in 1868. On the 14th of May 1870, Davitt was arrested at Paddington Station by Chief Inspector George Clark. The arms dealer had been waiting to meet John Wilson, an Englishman from Birmingham, who was travelling into Paddington with two suspicious parcels. After both Davitt and Wilson were arrested, the parcels were opened to reveal a total of 50 pistols, and Davitt was searched by Clark, and a large amount of cash amounting to £7,000 was secreted on his person. Charged with treason on the 11th of July, 1870, Davitt was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment, and Wilson, seven. Davitt served his sentence in Clerkenwell, Newgate, Millbank, and finally Dartmoor prisons, and his good behaviour saw him release in 1877, after serving just over seven years of his sentence. He returned to Ireland with other released political prisoners to a hero's welcome and began a lecturing tour of London, Liverpool, Manchester and Glasgow before heading to America to speak on the newly formed Land League which had Charles Parnell as its president and Davitt as one of its secretaries. On the 3rd of February 1881, Davitt was in Dublin busy with plans for a forthcoming Land League convention. Around 2pm he left the League's offices and walked across Carlisle Bridge with two colleagues when he was met by Detective Sheridan of the Dublin Police who said that Detective Inspector John Mallon wished to see him at his office at the Dublin Castle police headquarters. On arriving at the office, Davitt was met by Dolly Williamson and Donald Swanson, who produced a warrant and arrested the Irishman for breaking his ticket of leave conditions. Davitt immediately handed his resolver to Mallon. He was allowed a meal before being taken by Swanson and Williamson by cab to Kingstown, where the trio took the steamer Connaught to Holyhead, where they boarded a train to London. A considerable crowd had gathered at Euston Station anticipating Davitt's arrival, so preferring to avoid this, the detectives alighted at Willston Junction and changed to a train taking the prisoner to Broad Street, a finally a cab to Bow Street, where they arrived in the early hours, the 4th of February. By this time, the police presence was bolstered by Detective Chief Inspector Shaw and Detective Inspector Butcher, along with Howard Vincent. Davitt's case was immediately heard by Sir James Ingham and he was removed to Millbank Prison to complete his original sentence. It was a small victory for the police in the ongoing fight against the Fenian threat, but much worse to follow in the years ahead. A month after the arrest of Davet, Swanson and his wife celebrated the birth of their second son, James John Swanson. He was registered by his father on the 16th of April, but not before the detective had again been called away from London to trace a forger and thief well known to the Metropolitan Police by the name of Walter Selwyn. In 1876, Selwyn had set up an insurance company which invited young men to apply for the position of a secretary by enclosing a £50 deposit. When his manager was arrested and sentenced to nine months hard labour, Selwyn absconded. He next appeared in an office in Vigo Street, running an agency offering Seaside apartments for sale. The scam was a simple one. Applicants would view available apartments on a map and on making their selections would be asked for a small fee to reserve the property. Again, after a number of weeks, Selwyn would disappear with the money. Over subsequent months, Selwyn set up fraudulent companies around the city and closed them just as quickly, until in 1880 he became acquainted with a gang of professional thieves who used him to negotiate stolen bonds. The first transaction concerned £3,000 worth of bonds which had been stolen between Calais and Paris in 1878. The gang had previously used a German named Oscar Reumann to launder the stolen bonds, and finding himself cut out of the deal, the bitter Reumann informed the City of London police who arrested Selwyn and took him to the Guildhall Two days after he was released on bail, 1,400 pounds worth of New Zealand bonds were stolen from a vicarage in Devon, and Swanson was given the task of capturing Selwyn. Incidentally, this drawing of Selwyn is from the scrapbook of Frederick Abelheim, who would later himself arrest the swindler for a similar offence. Learning that each time the criminal disappeared, correspondence had been sent to him, carer of 119 in Rise Brighton, Swanson began to make inquiries in that neighbourhood. 119 is the house with the green door in this photograph. Before leaving for Brighton, however, Swanson liaised with the City of London police and made arrangements for them to watch a certain address in the city. As suspected, when Selwyn heard of Swanson's inquiries in Brighton, he fled to the house in in the city and he was held there by the city police until Swanson arrived to arrest him. Selwyn was charged with receiving stolen goods, fraud and forgery. At the Old Bailey on the 2nd of May, he was sentenced to five years' imprisonment on the forgery charge. It wouldn't be the last time that Swanson would work hand-in-hand with the City of London police. With when finally behind bars, Swanson was sent to arrest George Drevar, a captain of a Merchant Navy, who had spent several threatening letters to the Wreck Commissioner, Mr H.C. Rovery. Rovery had been responsible for spending Drevar's certificate two years earlier after concluding that the stranding and loss of the Norfolk in the Cape Verde Islands had been the result of negligence on the part of Drevar, its captain. Drevar held the Commissioner personally responsible for its inability to reclaim his logbook, which would show the accident was not his fault. He claimed the suspension of his certificate for six months had ruined him. In one of the letters, Drevar called Rovery a modern Jesuit and said that desperate remedies were required for desperate wrongs. He demanded recompense employment or an asylum and said that if he did not get what he wanted, he was charged his blood and that of another on the nation that so cruelly wronged him. Captain Drevar was well known to the public and if Swanson felt a little unsure what to expect of him when visiting him, it would not have been a surprise. In 1876, Drevar had been captain of the bark Pauline, which was carrying coals for HM naval stars in Zanzibar, and on the 8th of July it was off the northeast coast of Brazil, when the crew observed some black spots on the water and a whitish pillar about 30 feet high rising above them. Using binoculars, Captain Drevar saw a monster sea serpent caught twice around a large sperm whale. His description was reported in several excited newspapers with this sketch published in the Illustrated London News. Drifar's description was as follows. The head and tail parts, each about 30 feet long, were acting as levers, twisting itself and victim around with great velocity. They sank out of sight about every two minutes, coming to the surface, still revolving. And the struggles of the whale and two other whales that were near, frantic with excitement, made the sea in their vicinity like a boiling cauldron. This strange occurrence lasted some 15 minutes and finished with the tail portion of the whale being elevated straight in the air, then waving backwards and forwards and lashing the water furiously in the last death struggle, when the whole body disappeared from our view, going down head foremost to the bottom, where no doubt it was gorge at the serpent's leisure, and that monster of monsters may have spent many months in a state of coma, digesting the huge mouthful. Allowing for two coils around the whale, I think the serpent was around 160 or 170 feet long and seven or eight feet in girth. The Pauline arrived back in Liverpool on the 16th of January 1877, having spent a total of 20 months at sea. Drevar at once went to Liverpool Police Court, where he made a sworn affidavit as to the sightings of the sea serpent. Drevar claimed to have been invited to to London by several scientific societies in order to relate what he had seen. Whether he attended such a meeting is unknown, but he subsequently became captain of the Norfolk, a London based vessel. When Swanson visited Drevar and told him he was under arrest, the latter said he might go to court and shoot the wreck commissioner on the bench. He admitted writing the letters, saying he did so partly because of the insults received from Mr. Rovery, partly due to the fact he believed he was doing the Almighty's work in making his wonders known. He then showed the detective a smaller serpent which he claimed had been caught by a crew member of South Africa. It was some four or five feet long and of peculiar formation, kept in spirits in a glass bottle. Sea serpents notwithstanding, Drevard still threatened Mr. Rovery, and at the old bailey on the 6th of May, 1881, he was sentenced to three months' imprisonment. But Drevar was far, far from a crazed sea dog. He'd long been interested in lifeboats and other life-preserving craft, and he invented a water velocipede, which he patented on the 16th of January, 1877. The machine, a paddle lifeboat which could be constructed within 10 minutes, consisted of common items, such as a wine-packing case and a sawn barrel. After exhibiting this in 1882, the following year it was reported that Captain had made several attempts to cross the channel from Dover in his paddle boat, and another invention, a boat made out of a tub, affixed to a wooden frame, acting as a raft. Both vessels were attended as life-saving equipment, and Drevard's cross-channel crossings were merely marketing ploys, which each time resulted in him pulled from the water by various fishing boats. In many of these endeavours he was assisted by Mr Ward, whose son Alfred donned another Drevar invention, a waterproof costume. George Drevar eventually emigrated to Australia where he became a showman at the Royal Aquarium Pleasure Gardens at Sydney, as well as working at the recently opened Centennial Park where he offered his cask boats for rent to pleasure seekers. On New Year's Day 1890, he was on the shoreline of a dam at Centennial Park where he saw a boy in one of his casks capsize and begin to sink. Drevar, some 200 yards away, ran to the water's edge and jumped in. As he reached the boy, both sank. A witness dived in and saved the lad, but Drevar drowned. It was an ironic way for the master mariner to meet his end. One suspect that Donald Swanson looked back on his encounter with Drevar with pleasure, a note in his arrest book shown here recorded the captain as sea serpent man. By the time Trevor had been released from prison, the name of Inspector Swanson had become known across the country following his arrest of the killer of Frederick Isaac Gold on the London to Brighton train on the afternoon of the 27th of June. Eleven days after the murder, Swanson was standing opposite 32 Smith Street in Stepney with Inspector Frederick Jarvis and those who were on Neil's work earlier today stood on the same spot. At around quarter to eight in the evening, Swanson saw Jane Bickers walk up the path toward the front door. As Miss Bickers opened the door of number 32 and went in, Swanson followed and entered at the same time. He was met by her mother, Sarah Bickers, whom the detective took into the parlour and stated the nature of his visit. He was told the man he was interested in was at that moment in his room on the first floor. Swanson climbed the staircase, telling Detective Inspector Jarvis to stay downstairs guarding the front door. He quickly opened the door to the first room and saw a pale, thin man sitting in an armchair. Percy Lefroy Mapleton. Yes, I expected you. The subsequent trial and execution of Lefroy would be covered by the newspapers for months to come, putting Swanson firmly in the spotlight. His career was supposed to go from strength to strength, until, as we'd heard, he was appointed detective superintendent in the CID, a position he held until his retirement in 1903. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a year, a typical year in the life of a Victorian detective. The odd murder, lots of frauds, forgeries, and thefts but probably not too many sea serpents, though. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, um, we're going to take a short break here. Um, About 15 minutes. Go and charge your glasses. And then when we come back, we'll take a few questions. All right? Thanks a lot, everyone. Any questions that you have, please put your hand up and then um, Adam will answer them for you. So has anybody got a question that they'd like to ask Adam about the presentation or about anything else in his life, really?
3: Um, it strikes me from looking at that uh, selection of cases that you bought, which are obviously for one y- year... That they were ones that, through painstaking sort of detective work, you could follow a line of evidence to track someone down, which is obviously very different from the Ripper crimes, that didn't that didn't have that obvious evidence trained to follow. And it strikes me from what you from that presentation you gave that the detailed police work that they were capable of didn't equip them at all for anything like the
2: Ripper murders. Would you agree with that? That's a very difficult question to answer, obviously, but um, I think the thing to remember is that at the time Swanson was appointed, if you're talking about Swanson rather than the Ripper investigation generally, Swanson was appointed to one case from Scotland Yard, whereas it was dealt with locally beforehand. The Warren memo certainly appoints him for that one, that one case and he was held in situ from there. I feel that um, Swanson probably looked at the evidence that he had available, couldn't find an obvious I mean, the, 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 the cases we had there, you have to remember, Swanson was quite a new detective inspector. A lot of the cases were probably obvious solutions to them. I think you're probably fair in saying that the, uh, the detectives, certainly in Swanson's case, maybe weren't prepared for the lack of evidence that they could easily follow. And the number of suspects that were probably put their way, they ought to obviously follow every lead and, and investigate those to one way or another, uh, to dismiss them, probably in most cases. The work still had to be put in. But it's difficult to say whether they are prepared in advance for that or not. His, he obviously uh,
3: wrote a lot of uh, sort of composite reports during the Ripper case as well. And he obviously was used to doing very detailed work from those other cases and, and other years as well. Obviously that was just one year. And some people have sort of mocked his, um, if that's the right word, his detail, his attention to detail in some of the reports. Would you say they're fair
2: criticisms
3: or unfair criticisms?
2: Yes, yes, I would. I would. Um, I mean, I've been very fortunate... In while researching the book in that the family were doub- doubly fortunate, one, one in that they've retained so many papers and files and letters and secondly that they've let me see everything and I would say that almost every aspect of his life is really well documented I mean some of the letters that he's written just sort of personal, on a personal basis he's detailing the way he feels or the what he's done in incredible detail that it would, no normal person would probably do. And I think it probably was his detective training and his dot. Logging everything that he, he's probably feeling and everything that he's doing. His punctuation isn't brilliant, to be honest, on, on some of the reports especially. And, it, and you can sometimes read two different ways that it, these, perhaps he's, he's saying in some of those reports. But no, I think he's very, very meticulous. And perhaps some of the criticism he's had, I know I have the benefit of seeing a lot of documents that mo- nobody else has ever seen. So probably on the evidence that the general person can see, I can see where that criticism might come from. But in my opinion, it's unfounded.
3: I have a two-part question. Um, he received money um, as like a reward, but wouldn't that be treated as a bribery? And was that the case across the whole of the police division, they received money for a result?
2: That, I think it, it's, quite, it's quite common that the police would be given a reward or, or an award of some type. Um, I don't know if you could call it a reward if it was like an unsolved case like Harley Street but I'm going to have to ask, if he doesn't mind, I'll have to ask Neil, who know more about um, the etiquette or, or, or the rules, if you like, of, of a police being given a monetary reward. Um,
4: basically, there was a pot at court uh, where money was put in by local businessmen, shop owners, so on and so forth, and that was the reward pot, and that would be divvied out. Um, upon Basically, what would happen would be that the policeman's superior would recommend him for an award, and the magistrate or judge or whatever would agree or disagree and the set amount would be given out um, so in this particular case it looks like it was given to Swanson directly but it would be on the authorization of his senior officer for whether he deserved it first of all and whether he should accept it as long as it's actually noted down in gratuities there's not a problem um, Did you know if
3: Swanson was from London but, and if so would, would his local knowledge of the serum of Crime you know, criminals and that have helped him
2: No, he was actually from Thurso, at the very far north of Scotland. (laughs) His local knowledge wasn't that good at the time, but he moved to London when he was 19 and started working as a clerk in the city. And after a year, his employer um, decided to retire and gave up business, so Swanson literally didn't have an intention to join the Met when he first moved to London. Saw an advert in the Daily Telegraph on the day he was told that he was losing his job and just applied on the back of that. But he was 19 and uh, retired when he was 56. Obviously he was well suited to the work.
1: What made you interested in Swanson? Why have you done all this research actually on Swanson and not Abeline or or anyone else?
2: As Tony said in his introduction, I've written quite a few articles about some of the characters. Baxter and McNaughton have researched those their lives and careers. Um, I did a similar article on, for Rhybologist magazine on the Swanson marginalia. But I, I was halfway through that research and uh, I was told that the Swanson family live quite close to me in, in Worcester. And would I like to be put in touch with them to do more research on the marginalia? Of course, I said yes. And when I met Neville Swanson, he said, well, we've got basically a whole archive of his materials. Um would you like to come and see it yeah so effectively I finished the article on the marginalia but I realised that there was so much to this guy not only that he did but was available to be turned into research and turned into a book so when I finished the article in 2012 I asked the family would they be okay me continuing to look through their archives and write a biography obviously they're very very happy to do so so four years later I'm still writing it
3: (laughs) Um, did he ever disclose to like his descendants? Is there any family story about who who the ripper might have been? We know about the Swanson marginalia. Obviously, is there anything in in the family to to say he might have known who
2: who it was? Well, he, the, the, the stories that we hear from the family now, I mean, there's one surviving granddaughter, uh, and beyond that is great-great-grandchildren. But um, Mary Birkin, who's the uh, the last surviving grandchild of Donald Swanson, grew up with her um, her father, who's his eldest son. Uh, and it, she says it was well known in the family that the identity of the Ripper was known. But they didn't say it was definitely kasminski because at the time the family didn't know anything about the marginalia until it was discovered. But there was a feeling in the family that the case had been solved. He knew it. It was simple as that, but they didn't ask anymore. And he certainly, apparently Donald Swanson certainly wouldn't tell anyone in the family, this is who it was. He didn't sort of tell all tales out of school, as his grandson James Swanson said. It was just an understanding in the family that, yep, they knew it was. It wasn't made public. It wasn't an arrest or, or an imprisonment. And when the um, marginality was discovered in 1980, uh, 1981... They just just put two and two together and said, well, that's what the understanding was. So there's possibly his eldest son, Donald Neville Swanson, did know about the marginalia, he did know about Kosminski, but none of the other documentation has come down through the family. Yeah, Adam, um, do you intend doing any research
3: into Swanson? And uh, Uh, if you do, uh, (laughs) would you consider publishing a book on the subject? Um, It's crossed my mind, yeah,
4: in the past, yeah. (laughs)
3: Uh, the gun, would that have been in the book of uh, whatever you said it was? The book of allowable things? Would that have been? seems a bit of a strange one, doesn't
4: it? Yeah, the book of gratuities. I don't know, to be honest with you. It's not something what? I've come across. It's purely monetary. Whether would that have
2: been treated as a gift?
4: Yeah, a it would have been a big be 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 gift. Such. Again, it would have had to have gone through the seniors at, at, uh, at Scotland Yard. Well, the interesting thing is,
2: was he trained to use a gun? Do you know that it was ever used? Uh, well Jim, Jim Swanson the, gr- the grandson um, wrote some letters to this is part of the research for the marginalia, wrote some letters to Paul Begg in the 1980s um, and he said that apparently Donald Swanson kept a pistol after, in his retirement, don't know if it's the same one, kept a pistol for fear of reprisals from the Fenian cases that he was involved in in the mid-1980s Neville Swanson doesn't know anything about uh, another gun apart from the one which has been returned to the family recently All policemen in the the Met, and I'm assuming the city, were trained to use them.
4: They were trained at um, the firing range at Wermers Scrubs and Peckham Lane, I think it was, Peckham Rye Lane or something like that. So it would be interesting to find out if Swanson was actually trained on it. If he wasn't professionally trained, then it would have been obviously on his own bat, you
2: know, as an amateur. It's interesting. He's... His youngest son, just just to finish on that, his youngest son, he went to the grave the other day, his youngest son was actually a crack shot. And I think during some national championships in the the 1920s was sort of generally first and second place all the time. Excellent marksman for the local gun club. So whether that was sort of some involvement from Donald Swanson or just something he did off his own back, I don't know. Okay.
1: uh, unless there's any more questions, there's just one more question that I'm going to ask, which is, um, obviously, you're writing the book. When do you hope to publish it?
2: Well, the the good news is that... um I've been running it for a long time but the good news is that Swanson's now dead. So I've just got uh, the final chapter is the research and the my take on the Seaside Home which I presented seen in December. Kosminski and the identification so that might take a little bit of time. I'm hoping to get it out before Christmas but the problem is that the printer that I use in the publishing department they're very very busy. Once you get to November if you don't get a book in by November you're going to miss the Christmas market so it may come out in January as Cryology did last year so so I may finish it within the next couple of months but you may be January before it's published Thanks everybody Adam Wood
0: And that was Adam Wood speaking at the August 2016 meeting of the Whitechapel Society I'd like to thank Mr. Wood the Whitechapel Society and especially our fill-in sound man Paul Noble for making this release possible The access that the Whitechapel Society, the U.S. Ripper Conference, Frog Moody, and Casebook Classic Crime have all gave to this podcast really is a blessing, in my opinion, in allowing people from all around the world to hear, for free, such a wide selection of the best presentations on Victorian and Edwardian true crime, and I couldn't be more grateful to all of them for that privilege, so thank you again. If you would like more information about the Whitechapel Society, as Tony said, please go to whitechapelsociety.com To check out the books available from Mango, visit mangobooks.co.uk And if you'd like to begin receiving your free bi-monthly copy of Ripperologist Magazine, email contact at RipperologistBIZ. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you can find over 70 of our roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference talks all about Jack the Ripper, the Whitechapel murders, and Victorian true crime. We also have a discussion group on Facebook and we're on Twitter so you can find us at both places simply by searching for RipperCast. I'd like to thank everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.